0: In the late 60s, a professor at the University of Southern California named Leo Biscaglia had a girl in one of his classes commit suicide. Now, she had been one of those very attentive students, and so it touched him really deeply. And he began to ponder what they were doing with kids, that are we just teaching them head knowledge or really changing their hearts? And he approached the faculty with a proposal to teach a new class called Love 1A. It would be a non-credit course, but it would help students learn how to love. And the first year he offered it, 20 students signed up. And then it began to snowball. Soon they had 200 students filling his classes and a waiting list of hundreds. And people soaked up his lectures. And they learned how to love in a greater way. In fact, one time after a lecture, someone asked the professor if they could give him a hug. And soon it became his trademark that after every lecture, people would line up, sometimes by the thousands, simply to give him a hug. And so that the time to go through the line to greet everyone took longer than his time of the lecture. Now, here's what Biscaglia said. Somewhere along the line, you've got to learn to love. I think that's been the message of the Bible. It's been the message of 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most poetic, beautiful, oft-recited statements on love ever written. And it's interesting, it was written by a person that many believed to be a male chauvinist, but a man who had a heart of love. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says, and this is called the love chapter, that you can do a lot of things in life, but if you don't have love, you have no voice. If you don't do it out of a heart of love, you actually accomplish nothing. And so he goes on to describe these character traits of love, which really are the essence of life, relationships that are glued together by this thing called love. And we've been talking about it this whole month. We've been looking at just one verse in the middle of that chapter, where it talks about an unfailing kind of love, and asking, how can I have that? Because I really want that. I want a love that lasts. It may be your friendships. It may be your relationship with your kids. It may be your relationship with your spouse. It's probably all of them where you say, I want those relationships to endure the test of time, and they can if we have the kind of love described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, when we come to church on any given Sunday, I need to tell you a truth that some of you know and some of you may not know. But we are, we are a room full of dysfunctional people. Look to your neighbor and say, You're, no, don't do that. <laughs> Point the finger to yourself because I grew up in a home that was very dysfunctional. We picked on each other. We yelled at each other. And that happens within our homes. And Yet we come to church, walk through these doors, and everyone's happy. Everyone's smiling, and kids are obeying their parents, and they're holding hands. Spouses are together. But, and we don't know what's just happened this week, the tension the fighting, the angst, the frustration, all that's going on in the homes, and I'm telling you, it's all over the place. I was just told this morning of a young couple. They've only been married just a couple years, and they're already at a place in life where it looks like their marriage may not make it. And that is not a unique situation. I, I, I tend to believe that is the norm now, that most relationships are dysfunctional. And so what I hope today, and I've been praying that God would seal this series on love in your heart in such a way. And by the way, if you haven't been following, you can go online and listen to any of the messages. But God would would really transform you and set you down a different course in how you love because this really can make all the difference in your relationship with your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your friends, if you would do simply what this passage says to do. So before we actually go into it one more time, I'm going to ask if you would be willing to dare to pray that God would change your heart today. Father, I want to pray for myself and my friends gathered here. Your word is powerful, living, and active. Would you do a great work in us as we focus on the beauty of this passage, Lord, and what you desire for us, that we truly would have an unfailing love like yours. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 and first part of verse 8. In fact, I'm going to have you read it out loud with me, a very short verse, something we all should memorize. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, we've looked at each of those, and I'm not going to go in depth other than to say when love protects, it, it creates a safe place, a covering for people. Uh, that they're very, that you, they can approach you. That there's secure boundaries in that relationship. We want to have a love that always trusts, that says, I will always trust you, and I will seek to earn your trust by my behavior. And last week, we talked about hope and how unmet expectations, disappointments, uh, doubts, and fears can rob us of hope. Because God is a God of hope, and He can do immeasurably beyond all we ask or imagine. So we keep praying that God would do more in our relationships. And today, we look at this topic of perseverance. We asked a few couples in the church to give an answer to how has their marriage persevered. It might be just a couple years. It might be many years, but what has been the key to persevering in your marriage? And so I want you to listen to this video as four couples give their answer to that question. Our biggest thing has been believing best intentions. Which isn't an excuse for the other person to do whatever they want, but we try to believe that the reasons behind what the other person is doing is with good intentions with pure intentions with um, rationality to it, and doesn't mean we don't get upset with each other but it does help mitigate the frustration a little bit yeah so because we just know that a lot of times it's easy to think well i'm doing it because of this reason and then we'll see the person do something of the exact same type of thing and it can be very easy just to see it with um, a negative um, scope on it and so we try to have a very positive outlook on how that goes so and have fun together yes It's not a compromise because that intones a win-lose situation. I think it's a collaboration because both parties win because you come to agreement on what you're going to do. So, you know, even through the, the hard times, you've come to an agreement that there are bigger things than the current situation that require it to persevere. It's learning what makes your spouse tick and not using that against them but using that to encourage them so it's learning you know what their love languages are and that and then using that not as a weapon against them but as a means of encouragement for them and knowing that you know certain things drive them crazy so don't do those things or try to avoid them to the extent that you can um, you know so that you don't go against their weaknesses too. Commitment remaining committed and then trying to keep Christ as our center in our own lives, as well as in our marriage. is forgiveness. James 3, 2 says that we all stumble in many ways, and I need grace and forgiveness daily. And Jesus told Peter to forgive 490 times. And uh, or we wouldn't, we're not going to be forgiven if we don't forgive. And Susan says she's gone over 490. I'm, I, on I'm up in the thousands. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Perseverance. Beautiful thing. What, what is perseverance? It is a determined continuation in something despite especially difficult circumstances. Some of your Bibles say the King James style of it. Instead of perseverance, it says love endures all things. So what are all things? What, what, what kind of things? Anything, something, and everything. It's, it's everything that comes along. Good things, tough things, frustrating things, bad things. That love will persevere in spite of those situations. This week, a mentor, father figure of mine, uh, Dr. Leroy Lawson or Roy, as we call him, stayed a few days at our house and Roy has a young man that he has taken under the wing as, as a gentleman he calls his son. It was a, a boy that was in his first youth group back in Oregon years ago. And he was a single parent child, very troubled, into alcohol, trouble with the law, a rebellious kid, and yet Roy continued to love him and guide him. And over the years, as Roy moved on, Jeff would call him and ask for help in his life. And Roy would love him and coach him, and when Jeff got married, he performed the marriage ceremony, when Jeff just about ruined their marriage. Roy was there to counsel them and guide them, and Jeff's now in his 60s. And the other day, Jeff said something to someone I think was so amazing. He said, I don't think there's anything that I can do that would cause Roy to stop loving me. I thought about that. That's not a son. That's not a wife. That's a troubled kid. And yet this pastor, father figure, said, I will keep loving you no matter what. That's the essence of a love that perseveres. I refuse to stop loving you no matter what. Now you might want to just rephrase that in a more positive way just to say this. I will keep loving you no matter what because my love isn't, isn't determined by those things in the what's. My love is determined by my choice to love you. I will persevere in my love. Now why do we need to do that? Why do I need to persevere? Several reasons. One is because... Pain will come, and pain tempts me to quit. We all have an aversion to pain, physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, relational pain, and our natural tendency is to withdraw from pain. I don't like pain. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get away from it. But pain isn't necessarily a bad thing. Pain helps us to grow in perseverance. We see this in the training of the Navy SEALs. They have probably the most grueling training exercise of any military unit Hell week is five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult training on less than four hours of sleep. On their own website, the Navy SEAL's website, it describes that week like this. Trainees are constantly in motion, running, swimming, paddling, carrying boats on their heads, doing log PT, sit-ups, push-ups, rolling in the sand, slogging through mud, paddling boats, doing surf passage. And being still can be just as challenging when you're standing interminably in formation, soaking wet on the beach or up to your waist in the water with the cold ocean wind cutting through you. Mud covers uniforms, hands and faces, everything but the eyes. The sand chafes raw skin and salt water makes cuts burn. Students perform evolutions that require them to think, lead and make sound decisions and functionally operate when they are extremely sleep deprived, approaching hypothermia and even hallucinating. While trainees get plenty to eat, some are so fatigued that they fall asleep in their food. Others fall asleep while paddling boats and have to be pulled out of water by their teammates. Now on top of that are instructors with bullhorns, encouraging them to quit, telling them how hard it is, how painful it is, and the best thing they could do is just get out of it. They're trying to mimic those voices that creep inside of your head that want you to bail out, and there's actually a bell that they could ring to be free from the pain. And most men take the bell. Only about 25% get through training. They offer them hot coffee and donuts if they would get out. I believe that many of us in in our relationships, and particularly in marriage, feel like I can't handle the pain anymore, I'm going to ring that bell. And there's a voice whispering in your head saying, it's too painful, you don't deserve this, you need to get out. And that's the voice of the evil one whispering to you. Pain can cause us to want to quit. But Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Again, the Apostle Paul is reminding us of what pain can do. He says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance the reason navy seal training is so tough is that when they are out on mission in the battlefield they want to know that these men will not quit they will not give up on their mission they will not give up on their teammates because they've been toughened by pain pain helps me learn that perseverance i i need perseverance because i need to grow up Listen to what James says in the first chapter of James. He he talks about trials and what trials can do in our lives. And so, verses 3 and 4, he says, You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Our our students are in a period of testing right now, and and the tests reveal what they know. And the testing of your faith comes so that God may know what's in your heart. You may say you believe. But the test proves whether you believe or not. And marriage and parenting can test us as much as anything. Uh, I've become a great prayer warrior because of my marriage and my kids. I think you have too. It's put you on your knees. It's caused you to cry out to God to intervene because he wants us to grow in our faith. The goal is maturity. And that's why in any relationship, particularly marriage, two imperfect people are trying to figure out how to have a marriage that lasts. So when I married my wife, I had good intentions. I wanted to give myself to her to help her become all that God wanted her to be. And I thought, that is a great attitude toward marriage. What I didn't understand was that God wanted to use her to change me. And how God has used her to bring out issues within me and fears within me and problems within me in a good way. Why? So I could grow up. So I could... Hey, that's not... I take that personally. (laughs) I'm still growing. I'm learning. My wife's helping me grow up. And that's true of you too. You know, God uses your kids to help you grow up. So God uses perseverance to help us mature. I need to persevere because I want to be blessed. We go later in the the book of James where he speaks of of Job, someone we talked about just a, a few weeks ago says, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. God allowed Job to go through some extreme difficulties, the testing of his faith. He lost his, his farm. He lost his family. He lost his health. But he didn't lose his hope. He had a thread of hope he held onto, to. And in the end, the Lord finally brought about a blessing that was greater than anything he'd experienced before. God is that kind of God. Even in the midst of our pain and suffering, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He's not a glutton for punishment. He wants to bless us. But sometimes the pathway to blessing comes through that growth. In the Catholic Church, there is a program called Retrovi. Retrovi is a French word that means rediscovery. And what they present in that course for couples, and, and couples who've gone through a period of difficulty or coldness in their relationship, is to recognize there are four typical stages in a relationship. It starts at romance. Then it moves to disillusionment. talked about that last week when unmet expectations come. It moves to misery and then to awakening, the discovery. What happens with many of us is we get into phase two and three, disillusionment and mercy, and we go ring the bell. This is not what I bargained for. This is not what I thought marriage was going to be. I am getting out because I want stage one. And there's this cute guy or Kirk gal that I know that if I hooked up with them, I would have stage one all over again, and it would last forever. And it doesn't. You have to mature through the process. And for most of us, and I'm speaking, it's true of me too. Romance starts to fade. It's based on a, on a surface kind of love. And you start to think again, what is love? And do I love this person? And sometimes it feels like misery. But you're on the verge of a breakthrough because when you get to the other side of that, there's an awakening. This this beautiful discovery that love is much deeper. And I want to tell you, and some of you know what I'm talking about, there is a love far deeper than physical beauty. It's a love that a couple who's been married uh, 20, 30, 50, 60 years experiences. And when you see an older couple holding their hand, You see that kind of love. It's because they've had the awakening. It's not that they've had a perfect marriage. It's not that things have always been easy. It's that they've gone through the process and they went to awakening. Don't ring the bell. Have the kind of love that says, I will never give up on us. I will keep loving you no matter what. That's the kind of love God calls us to have. Professor, pastor, author Tom Mullen writes, happy marriages begin when we marry the ones we love but they blossom when we love the ones we marry. Don't listen to the one with the bullhorn that's whispering in your ear, give up, give up. Just recognize you're in marriage seal training. And then I don't want to give up because Jesus persevered for me. Jesus persevered for me. We see that in the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter. It's so beautifully written of what We persevere because he persevered. What did Jesus endure? What were the things that Jesus had to endure for us? Where he says, he endured the cross. And that's everything, the scourging, the mocking, the crown of thorns on the head, the, the nails in the hands and in the feet. He did it, why, for us. He did it for us. He laid on that cross in the hot sun, virtually naked with people laughing and spitting at him. Why? Because he loved us. He endured the cross for us. So he says, persevere for me. It says he endured the opposition from sinners, people who were opposed to his love, who didn't like what he had to say, and people who churned against him. He says, Consider him who endured all that. He didn't have to, but he did it for you and for me, so that the joy set before him, which was your salvation, his family growing, men and women coming into the family of God. That's why he did it. And that's why I do it for others. You know, Jesus wasn't real popular when he walked this earth. In fact, oftentimes, crowds dispersed from Jesus when the teachings got tough. One time, when Jesus refused to continue to give people what they demanded, and thousands left, he turned to his own disciples and says, hey, you guys leaving too? Everyone else has left. And the disciples said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we turn to Jesus, who loves us, and I want to learn to persevere like him. So how can I have a love that perseveres like Jesus. I want to tell you it's very simple. It's not rocket science. It's really simple. It's to live like a servant. It's to live like a servant. I want to take you to a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. It's a chapter of the Bible that actually describes Jesus' new commandment. And we're not going to read that part, but Jesus is about to say that I give you a new command, you're to love one another. But before he did that, he showed them what that looked like. And so we read about it in John chapter 13, starting with verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer garment or outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus did something that's so humbling. And it begins with the saying, he loved them to the end. That's a persevering love. That's an unfailing love. It never gave up. And he shows in such a dramatic display. Not just with words, I love you, but in action, by being a servant. So here's what he did. Takes off his outer garment so he can maneuver a little better, puts a towel around his waist, and he gets down on his hands and feet, and he begins to wash these dirty, smelly, cracked feet of the disciples. Now, you and I need to understand, in that culture, there were not uh, a lot of modes of transportation. Most people walked the dusty trails to get from place to place, and they didn't um, have a lot of great footwear, and when I think about it, I don't even think they had toenail clippers. So I don't know if their kids bit them off for them or what they did. <laughs> but anyway, I don't even want to think about that. But I made you think about that. So he gets down on his, on his hands and feet. And he begins to wash these, these stinky, cracked feet. And the, and the disciples are, no, no, it's t- too gross, Jesus. Don't do that. He says, I must do this. I was trying to think of an equivalent today because sometimes churches say we're going to practice foot washing, and, you know, we have feet that have been protected with shoes and socks, and they're, and they're, they're, they're maybe a little smelly, but they're not that bad. What would be the comparable thing today? Well, if you're a toddler, it would be changing your diaper. I changed a really nasty diaper this week. Oh, nasty, <laughs> nasty. It'd be like that, but most of you don't wear diapers, so... It'd be like Jesus showing up at your front door with a scrub brush and a rag saying, I'm here to clean your toilets. And you know, we'd kind of say like, ah, not, not, not you, Jesus. No, no. Because no, I, I, that, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to serve. Service is humbling. When our daughter uh, married our son-in-law, Tom, they did something I've never seen repeated in any wedding I've ever participated in. After they shared their vows and the rings were exchanged, they brought out a basin of water and Tom washed Stephanie's feet and she washed his feet. And then they brought the basin over to the parents of the bride and groom and washed our feet. And I thought, what a great picture of we are entering into a lifetime of service. See, the key to a lasting love is to adopt the mindset of a servant. That's Jesus' whole mindset. Mark chapter 10. Verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give of himself and give of himself to such a degree that even it would require the giving of his very life. Now what makes this passage of the foot washing even more powerful is the excuses Jesus would have had not to serve. The same excuses we would use not to serve. And when you truly have a heart to serve, you serve in spite of three different situations. First, I serve even when I think my needs are greater. It's the Last Supper. It says that Jesus knows his time has come, which means he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be led off to a trial. He knows he's going to be crucified. And yet in the midst of all that, in the midst of this crunch time in his own ministry, he's thinking of dirty feet. I don't know about you, but when my uh, life is stressful... When I have uh, uh, stuff going on in my life, or if I'm working on my sermon to get it finished, I stop being very servant oriented. I get very selfish. Like, it's my time, it's my space. I I I need you to back away and leave me alone. In fact, on Saturdays, it's my day just to have me and the Lord and finish the sermon. And even when my wife walks in, and I have to pause, and I look up and I graciously respond but I don't engage in a lot because this isn't is my time. Even if my grandson comes in, and you know how much I love him, it's I give him a quick hug, and he needs to get out of the room. This is, this is my space, my time. Moms get it better than dads. I think dads, we are honestly fairly selfish. We've got our space, our time, our stuff, but my mom gave so generously to the kids. I mean, the kids always got things before mom did, so you moms get it better than us. But you know, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Sam brought up this verse from Philippians Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To think better of someone else. I mean, isn't marriage at least should be 50-50? When we have, you know, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty good at sharing until it comes to desserts. (laughs) It comes to desserts. We get very territorial. I mean, we're, we're cutting a piece of cheesecake down the middle, I mean, we're really trying to get exactly in the middle. I usually try to get the piece that's just a little bit bigger because, after all, I'm, I'm a big guy. I need more calories than she does, so I can justify that pretty easily. It's amazing when we have Klondike bars that we each get three, and we count them. <laughs> Marriage can be so competitive, but do you know what this passage tells me? That love is choosing to lose. You choose to lose time, money, ego, your desires, even your very life. When marriage becomes about winning, for example, I've got to win the argument, I've got to win the fight. I tell you this, if you are the kind of person that always has to be right, in the end, you'll be left. Think about that. You know, I, I want to grow in loving like that. In fact, I want to ask Pastor Sam, because that's his, one of his favorite passages. Come on up here, because I have something I want to give to him. Didn't he do a fantastic job a couple of weeks ago preaching? Woo! I know one of his favorite things to do is go off by yourself to Chick-fil-A and just spend some time working on your message. So um, I want to say thank you to you. Here's a couple gift cards to Chick-fil-A for you to go spend some great time with you and the Lord. Best boss ever. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Come back here. Come back. And have something else. Here's your own suitcase. Next time we travel, you can take that, okay? Think of the needs of others. Here's another reason to be a servant, even when I feel they are undeserving. Do you know who was at the table that night? Did Did you catch the scripture? Judas, whom Satan had entered. And Jesus washes his feet just like everybody else's. That's amazing. Because you and I aren't like that. If someone offends me, is rude to me, I'm going to treat them differently. Jesus says, this guy is going to betray me, turn me in. But I'm going to love him no matter what. That's the kind of love Jesus had and wants me to have. And then I need to be a servant, especially when I'm placed in a position of power. It says that he knew the Father had put all things under his power. So he got up from the table, wrapped the towel around him, and began to wash feet. Think of that. He knew he was the one in power. Jesus knew that everything on this planet was made by him and for him. He is the king of kings and lord of lords after all. And what does he do with his power? He says, I'm going to wash feet. You know, it's so contrary to our culture. In our culture, this, the, the feeling is when you get to the top, everyone else serves you. You've served long enough. Now you can call the shots. You can tell other people to make your life comfortable. After all, you're the boss, the leader, the commander, The dad. Dad, you know what I believe? That in the home, the biggest servant should be Dad. If we're to be like Christ, who was such an awesome servant, then it tells me that I don't need to lecture my kids on love, I need to demonstrate it by serving my wife and serving my kids. And, and wives, I don't want to let you off the hook either. Sometimes you're real good at loving your kids. But because your husband's offended you or made you mad, you don't serve him very well. Serve him. Because that's what Jesus did for us. We serve from a position of power. It's like turning the org chart upside down. The ones on top should be the biggest and greatest servants. Romans 13.8 says, We owe it to the people around us. Let no debt remain outstanding except Or The continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The continuing debt. You and I will never pay that off. Take the rest of your life. It's not a debt they owe you. Did you hear it? It's a debt I owe the people around me. Let no debt remain outstanding except this one to love one another. So the rest of your life, you owe it, because of Jesus, to love one another. When you came in today, you should have received a card if not, you can pick one up on the way out. It's called My Promise of Unfailing Love. I really try to think through, what are we asking people to commit to? I want to read this to you. And I want you to think about the people around you, your kids, your spouses, your parents, your friends. Are you committed to this kind of love? If I've never told you before, I want you to know that I will never stop loving you. My love for you isn't a reaction to what you do for me, though you do wonderful things. My love for you isn't based on how you look or what you achieve, though I admire the amazing person he's made you to be. I deeply love you because God loves me and has given me a heart that wants to share his love with you. I want you to always feel safe with me. When you're with me, you can be yourself, share your crazy thoughts, and even your painful secrets. It's okay. I'm not going anywhere. I won't leave you when you wrestle with doubt, struggle to figure out God's will, or choose a different path then I've chosen. My love may sometimes feel tough, but know that it's only because I want what's best for you. I trust you and want to be worthy of your trust. I will always be grateful that God has placed you in my life. I know that he wants me to encourage you, not to fix you, support you, not control you, uplift you, not use you. I will celebrate your successes and comfort you in your losses. I will laugh with you, but never at you. You can cry with me, but I hope not because of me. I will forgive you when you've wronged me, and I will be honest and vulnerable about my own weaknesses. I will not revisit the mistakes of our past, but will put my hope in our future. I don't expect you to be perfect or even be like me, but I pray that you will be more like Jesus every day. I will always look for the best in you. God has gifted and filled you with great potential. I will believe the best days are still ahead. I want to serve you just as my Lord served me. I want to lay my life down for you to meet your needs, to listen more than I talk, to affirm the good more than criticize the bad, and to treasure the precious times we have together. I will never give up on you, and I will never give up on us, no matter what circumstances may come or whether we are separated by differences or distance. Because Jesus never gave up on me, and because he lives in me, I will always love you. Always. And I want to challenge you to take that home. if you truly believe those words, assign your name to it. And give it to your spouse or to your kids and say, that's who I'm going to be. Now, some of you may feel feel it, Pastor, it's very one-sided. I wish my spouse were here today or my kids were here today because they need to hear this too. And maybe that's true. But God has you here today. But how's it going to work if it's just me? Well, there was a time before you were born When a God saw you being formed in your mother's womb, said, I love that little boy, that little girl. And when you were born and began to grow up and began to discover life and rebellion and sin, God says, I love that person so much. I want them to know that I sent my one and only son to die for them. And somewhere along the line, many of you actually surrendered your life back to Jesus, but you need to know this. Before you ever loved him, he loved you first. It was very one-sided, and honestly, it still is. So what's so wrong about learning to love like Jesus? To say, I will love them, even if they don't love me. Because that's what Jesus did. I don't usually quote pop singers, but I actually love this quote by John Bon Jovi. He says, my wife tells me that if I ever decide to leave, she's coming with me. I love that. Because my Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You may run from him, but he will never let go of you.